Today's reading comes from Matthew 5, 38 to 42. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You may be seated. Yeah, and as you're being seated, let's just pray again together. Jesus, I I know of no greater truth personally uh, this morning than this truth that we are hidden in you. That if you are our Lord, if you are our King, we are hidden in you. And what is true of you is now true of us. That we will one day taste and experience a new resurrection body. We will one day know the joy of seeing the Father face to face and being in his presence and singing his glories and his praise uh, for all of eternity. That is good news to us this morning. And as we turn now and look at the great injustices in this world that we live in, Father, would you fill us despite, despite what we see full of faith and full of hope? By your Spirit, would you do this work? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm not really a, a movie award kind of guy, but fun fact, the winner of Best Motion Picture at the 75th Golden Globes was this movie called Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. If you've seen the movie, you know the movie follows uh, Mildred Hayes reeling uh, from the murder and rape of her daughter. And she commissions three billboards, as the title suggests, outside of her small town to antagonize what seems to be a, a disinterested police force. Now, the commissioning of these billboards sets in motion a series of events, eventually leading to one of the police officers, we're led to believe, Jason Dixon, setting fire to the billboards, thinking that these billboards contributed to the suicide of his his colleague. Well, in response to these billboards being burnt down, Mildred Hayes, well, she sets the police station on fire because an eye for an eye, right? Right? While unbeknownst to her, uh, Dixon, this police officer, was inside. At this point in the film, the cycle of violence has been so predictable and, 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 and so it's sort of intensifying that, that when the now badly burned Dixon finds himself in the same hospital room as one of the men that he has just beat on, just destroyed and thrown out a window, uh, that this is going to be the end of Dixon. That's what we're led to believe. That surely Dixon, this dirty, racist cop, will get what he deserves. Helpless in his body cast, the cycle of violence will surely continue. But then the strangest thing happens, and I didn't expect it. Dixon's new roommate, his previous victim, upon realizing it was him underneath that big body cast, turns and he walks to the corner of the room. And out of the corner of Dixon's eye, you see that he begins, this man begins to do something. And you're wondering as a viewer, like, what is he doing? Is he getting his knife? Like, to kill Dixon? Is he poisoning some water to give to him? Like, like what, what is he doing? Surely the violence will continue. And suddenly, you, the viewer, hear a clink on the table. And the camera pans down. And you see, not a knife, not a gun, not, not a poison drink, but a glass of orange juice. A glass of orange juice. 
Then the man turns, points the straw to him, and walks away. And if you've seen this movie, you know at that point in the film, the whole tenor of the movie begins to change. Dixon himself begins to to change, even if it's just slowly. The cycle of revenge spins less furiously, less vindictively. Now, for our purposes this morning, I don't want to give away the ending of the film, even though I just gave you the entire plot of the film, pretty much. Sorry about that. If you haven't seen it, I mean, it's like two years ago. But I want to see how this movie was received, because to me, the more fascinating thing was how the critics received this movie. See, many people had a hard time believing that a racist, dirty cop like Jason Dixon could be redeemed. And so one reviewer wrote this. It is asking a lot of people to watch a story in which we root for a racist and abusive police officer in the name of his own redemption. But it is asking even more of the audience if Dixon himself does no actual work in the name of earning that redemption. Grace, even the kind that comes in the form of a glass of orange juice, couldn't be more unbelievable. It's too much to ask of an audience. And truly, in both its content and its reception, three billboards outside of Ebbing, Missouri, is speaking to where Jesus wants to bring us next in the Sermon on the Mount. Directly to where Jesus wants us to go next uh, in this sermon. Jesus now, this morning, is holding open our eyes and asking us to consider the relationship between revenge and mercy. Between wrath and grace. He's forcing us this morning, if it's the first time here, welcome, to to ask uncomfortable questions like, uh, can justice and mercy coexist? Can they coexist? Isn't another name for a merciful person just a pushover? Just a doormat? And, And how do I get my pound of flesh if my cheek is turned the other way? What is Jesus really saying here? See, our text this morning, maybe you've heard it before, is one of the most quoted sort of passages in the Bible in in all of history. Uh, Politicians, spiritual leaders, maybe even your neighbor have quoted this verse to you, right? Turn the cheek, you know, love, mercy, all all that kind of stuff. What is Jesus getting at here? Well, Well, here's my outline that I want to use, in fact, borrow, in fact, steal from Heath, how we're going to work through the text this morning. Three points, really simple, just goes like this. What's been said, point one, what's been said. Two, what Jesus is saying. And three, now how should we live this out? What's been said, what Jesus has been saying, now how should we live this out? If you have your Bible, Matthew 5, 38, look with me. If you don't have a Bible at all, just so you know, we have some at the back for you to take and keep. It's our gift to you. Okay, Matthew 5, 38, in paper copy or on your phone, read with me. Jesus says this. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, like I said, this text, widely known, widely quoted outside of the church by by many different people. And one of the ways this text is in fact quoted is to prove to Christians, Christians, can't you see that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, clearly different gods, right? Right? That, that this God here who says eye for an eye and tooth for tooth is not unlike Mildred Hayes, right? Burn down my billboards. I'll burn down your police station. 
He's vindictive and petty and wrathful and so altogether mean and not nice, right? Not a deity we want to worship, at least. And then what Jesus says afterwards is really just merciful and kind. He's kind of like hippie Jesus, you know? A lot of peace signs. He would have done well in the 70s. Like, just like mercy and grace and like, yeah, whatever you say, man. You know, like that kind of Jesus. There's two Jesuses here, we're told. So what's being said? And how is Jesus not an entirely different deity than the one who gave the law which Jesus is quoting? I want us to dig in on verse 38. Again, if you're new with us, you're just popping in on the series. Jesus has been quoting from the Old Testament and summarizing these basic big ideas from the law. And the same thing is happening this morning. In Exodus 21, we read this. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then listen, you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, Foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. It's not just in Exodus 21. In Leviticus 24. Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good, life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall be done to him. Again, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Really succinctly, in like a summarized fashion, we find in Deuteronomy 19. Your eye shall not pity. Again, it shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Now, I want to begin by suggesting something to us that will sound very strange and counterintuitive. But I want to suggest to us this morning that we miss what Jesus is saying if we miss the inherent goodness and justice of this Old Testament law. The inherent goodness and justice of this Old Testament law. Consider with me two things. The first is this. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth guards against uh, excessive retaliation. It guards against excessive retaliation. Consider the case of Exodus 21. Do you remember that? When those men strive together... They hit a pregnant woman, and if something's, like, wrong with the child, then, like, something wrong happens to you, like, in the same measure. I don't know about you, and I don't pretend to speak for all dads and husbands in this room, but if someone hits my pregnant wife, like, I'm not just hurting you, but, like, your entire family. Like, like I am seeing, and you're like, oh, I have to leave now. <laughs> right? But, like, do you understand, like, that spirit that rises up in us? We're, we're like, it's not just enough for me to like burn down your home. I'm burning down the blocks of all the people you know. Like, like, like I'm coming towards you. Like, I'm, I'm coming after you. And an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth in Israel's world was meant to guard against this excessive retaliation, this punitive excess. It was this guard that, that, that guarded against two eyes for an eye. Or, or two stripes for a stripe. Th- this principle, called lex talionis, Lex talionis was so effective at mitigating excessive retaliation that you actually find this principle throughout the ancient world, throughout ancient uh, legal code systems. It's everywhere in the ancient world. Lex talionis. The second positive element of lex talionis that we shouldn't miss in our context 
is this. It guarded against vigilante justice. It guarded against vigilante justice. Remember, these laws are given not just to individual people, but to a nation. And as a nation, they were to be administered by a judicial body. So it wasn't just, you did this, okay, let me just set up my kangaroo court here and just sort of, you know, just administer justice as I'd like. No, no, no. Like, there's a judicial body administering these rules. And an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth was to be administered by, by, these, by these officials, these proper channels. In God's goodness and wisdom, despite how cool superheroes and John Wick are today, but in God's goodness and wisdom and justice, he gives Israel this principle to fight against vigilante justice, to fight against cape crusaders, if you will. What I want to suggest we have here then in our text is not an example of two natures of God, like one mean Old Testament one, one merciful New Testament one, but a God who has always been good, a God who has always been just, a God who has always been on the side of the oppressed and the weak and the poor. But what we see now in the sermon is Jesus speaking to the heart, the heart, the heart his people ought to have when administering justice. See, just as Jesus went deeper than adultery and he attacked the lusting heart. And and just as Jesus went deeper than murder, attacking the angry heart. And just as Jesus went deeper than lying and and this oath-skirting system, and he attacks the lying heart and the deceitful heart, what we're seeing now is that Jesus is going deeper than just eye for an eye, and he's attacking the merciless heart, the vengeful heart, the wrath-filled heart heart. Look back at Matthew 5, 39 to 42 with me, and we'll consider now our second point, what Jesus says. What Jesus says. Read with me. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, Go with him two months. Verse 42. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now immediately, immediately on the surface, uh, do not resist the one who is evil. Sounds like an outright like rejection of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But, But I think there's something else I want to suggest we need to understand about Israel's administration of justice. Something that Jesus has in mind, and it's this. In this life, in this life that we all live, God has always been inviting his people, always been inviting his followers, his disciples, to surrender their need for justice to him. To surrender their need to get their pound of flesh, to to vindicate themselves to him. Because here's the deal, and, and maybe you're thinking this right now. Sometimes the bad guys get away. Sometimes the bad guys get away. And sometimes that judicial body is full of evil and corrupt people like you and me who can be bribed and bought and and, and make poor decisions. And sometimes, isn't it true, that justice escapes us altogether in this life. David talks about that all the time in the Psalms. It seems like these people are just flourishing and doing evil things. What's going on, Lord? What then? What, What good is Lex Talionis 
when justice escapes us. Well, Israel said, the people of God have always said, then there is God. Then there is God. The, the, the big overarching truth, if we can say it like that, that, that governed Israel's justice system and, and that influenced its principles and wisdom and its practices was this big overarching truth, uh, this big ultimate act of faith, rather, that Yahweh does not forget. That he will avenge all wrongs. In Deuteronomy 32, we hear the Lord say simply, not a passage you like to read very often, he says really simply, vengeance is mine. Vengeance is mine. We see this played out in the life of, of, of Israel in one really clear example. David, King David. Do you know King David? He, he's on the run from Saul. He's fleeing Saul unjustly. And he comes across Saul in a cave. And he can kill Saul. He can solve the problems, right? Just kill Saul, become king, d- do what you do, David. And he does it. He leaves the cave, doesn't kill Saul, and he speaks immediately afterwards these words to Saul. In 1 Samuel 24, he says this. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. But listen to what David says. But my hand, my hand, shall not be against you. See, already, before Jesus is even on the scene, we see a faith-filled vision of justice that leads to unnatural mercy. Before Jesus is even on the scene, a faith-filled vision of justice that leads to unnatural mercy. It should not be shocking then when Jesus summarizes the law fulfilled in him like this, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. And then he gives, if that isn't clear, a number of examples. He says this, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, now, now think with me for a second. You can even do this with your body if you'd like. Most people are right-handed. If you're left-handed, I apologize. But most people are, are right-handed. And to be hit on the right cheek is to be hit with a, a backhand slap. If you'd like, you can practice on the person uh, beside you. Right? That's how that works, right? To be hit on the right side of your cheek is to be hit with a backhand slap. In the honor-shame culture in which Jesus inhabited, to be hit with a backhand slap was way worse than to be hit just with like, a four, like, a, like an open palm slap, if you can think of it that way. It was doubly shameful, doubly dishonoring. Uh, there's all sorts of Jewish literature, like, like exacting revenge and, and sort of consequences of being backhanded slapped, and, and what a disgrace and dishonoring act that that was. This incredibly dishonoring act in the honor-shame culture of Jesus' day. And so Jesus concludes, logically, we'll turn to him the other also. He keeps on going. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic. Now the tunic, because I know we all own tunics. I have my tunic at home right now. It's getting, it's actually the laundry cleaners right now. But the, the tunic was one of these like inalienable rights of an Israelite. There's actually a law in Exodus that says if you, for some reason, have someone else's tunic for collateral, for example, you have to give that tunic back by the end of the day because that tunic is their bed. That tunic is like their protection against the elements. It's one of the inalienable rights of an Israelite is one of these, these, these tunics. And surely we're entitled to our tunics, Jesus. Surely we're entitled to basic human rights, Jesus. Surely you understand this, Jesus. Let him have your cloak as well. And he's not done. He said two crazy things, and he's not done. He says one more crazy thing. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, again, remember, the Jewish people are an occupied people. 
And as an occupied people under the Roman thumb, uh, they could be conscripted for military activities, including marching with the military, carrying their packs, whatever it might be, whenever they want. So a soldier could approach a Jew and say, hey, carry this for me. And the Jew has to comply, has to do that. And there were limits to this, but it was this reminder that you're not a free people. You're an occupied people. And if it wasn't enough to be slapped, and if it wasn't enough for us to take your stuff from you, now we're going to remind you with heavy labor. It's dehumanizing. And Jesus is a Jew, right? Surely he'll understand, right? Surely this is a step too far, right? He says, go with him two miles. And and these verses, at least as I read them this week, they they elicit, I think, a physical reaction in us. They change our chemistry. Maybe they make you feel uncomfortable. Maybe you're making the parallel to some sort of modern analogy and and you're like, they're making you angry. Or or maybe you're just confused. Can you imagine the reaction in Jesus' day? We know for a fact that there is a zealot, Simon the Zealot, listening to Jesus' words. Now the zealots were a group of Jews who were committed to not just like sitting by and watching the Roman occupation go on, but to rising up with force against the evil Romans to take the land that is rightfully theirs. We have a zealot listening to Jesus' words. What do you think Simon the zealot is thinking? What is he thinking? See, we've seen what Jesus said, but what is Jesus saying, right? I think verse 42, if you have your Bibles open, I think verse 42 is supremely helpful here. I think it acts as this summarizing statement. Jesus says this, Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now now this sounds less crazy, right? We can get on board with this. We see someone on the street, we give them money. That, That sounds reasonable. But Jesus isn't saying anything new in verse 42. He's saying what he's been saying all along with the other examples, namely this, When it comes to justice, I want you to love mercy. When it comes to justice, I want you to love mercy. Even when your honor is challenged, when you're shamed in public, love mercy. Even when your rights are stripped, love mercy. Even when all hope is lost, when there seems like there's no future, or that person is taking your future from you, love mercy. It's the same mercy that is seen in giving to the one who begs. It's the same mercy at work when you lend without interest to the one who is needy. In all instances where there is injustice of some sort, love mercy. Now there have been some in the history of the church who have wanted to interpret these verses quite literally. uh, So much so uh, that they do not resist an evildoer to the point of not locking their doors at night. Because I would be resisting someone who is evil. And and Jesus says, don't don't do that. I want to respectfully, respectfully suggest this morning that that's not what Jesus is saying. That what Jesus has in mind here is not anti-police, anti-government, anti-military, or something that compromises our ability to love thy neighbor through protecting them. I want to respectfully suggest that's not what Jesus has in mind here. Rather, as Jesus has been doing all along, he is holding up these hyperbolic examples as sayings that are intended to point us to the truth. 
to, to challenge our merciless hearts. One commentator says this. In summary, there is a righteousness greater and more beautiful than self-justice. Letting God be the judge and righteousness maker, the one who puts the world to right. He continues, often the right or righteous thing to do is to be wronged by another. Often the just thing to do is not to seek one's own justice. It shouldn't surprise us then to to see Jesus' ethic lived out in the early church. When Paul writes to the church in Corinth, a lot of crazy things happening in Corinth. Don't have time to get into it this morning. Crazy things, like wild things, like embarrassing things. Uh, One of the things that's happening is that the courts are full. And they're not just full with like pagans, with like petty little problems with each other. The courts are full of Christians. Christians suing other Christians. Apparently, Jesus' teaching on mercy has not stuck with the church in Corinth, and they're just suing each other left and right. Right? Let's just sue each other. You did that, I'm going to sue you. You did that, I'm going to sue you. And the, and the worst part about this, is, Paul will say, is that there are outsiders looking at the church and be like, oh, easy. Their church is full of the same vindictive, petty, vengeful people as exist outside the church. And Paul's rightfully concerned about this. And so he writes this to the church. He says this, To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Like you already look terrible. And this is embarrassing. Then he says this, Why not rather suffer wrong? Think about this. In view of who God is, in view of who you are in Christ, why not rather suffer wrong? He even says this, why not rather be defrauded? Christ said, we have to ask this morning, where do you want your pound of flesh? Where do you want to exact your revenge? Now, while Jesus might be using hyperbolic examples, exaggerated examples in his, in his illustrations, he's also showing us very clearly that he's not ignorant of the type of evil that we experience. He's telling us, he's reminding us that Jesus knows, that the God, our Father, Son, and Spirit knows of the injustices in this world. Those three examples on their own individually would be devastating to a first century Jew. And yet, isn't it true that we unleash our wrath We seek our revenge in situations not even approaching what Jesus is talking about. Isn't that true? In much lesser situations. For example, when our authority, our control, is challenged at home, at work, or on the street, watch out. I'm coming for you. Or, how about this one? When our right, it's our right, to low-cost, high-speed internet is, is threatened by that evil customer service rep on the other end of the phone. Whew. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to teach you a lesson. The other day I was in Tim Hortons, which I realize just loses all credibility with you right now. But I was in Tim Hortons. I like Tim Hortons. And, and, and I, I was there, and there's a lady in front of me. She was getting a, a chicken soup. And she began to berate the lady at the counter because there weren't enough chunks of chicken in her chicken noodle soup. It's a real story. And speak to her as if she's not like a person anymore. And you know what the worst part about that story is? If we're being really honest, 
Like, there's this little voice inside me that says, like, you got to get what's yours. You know, they promise you chicken noodle soup. You better get your chunks of chicken. And I don't care what it, what it takes or how you have to speak to that lady. You, you get what's yours. It's worth asking, where does this merciless, vengeful, wrathful heart come from? I think it's a complex answer, but I, but I can suggest a few things. There's an old saying, maybe you've heard it, that goes, when the gods aren't appeased, they get angry. When the gods aren't appeased, they get angry. So when our money is threatened, uh, it's the bank employee who bears our wrath. Uh, When our control is threatened, it's our kids, our spouse, our coworkers who bear the wrath. But, But wrath doesn't always come from our idols being threatened. I think in this instance, Jesus is specifically talking about instances where, where it rises up in us when we see terrible injustice, like corrupt governments and mass killings. In fact, we've already seen in the sermon, do you remember this? That Jesus says that we will endure suffering and hardship, injustice at times, not because we've sinned, not because of our own internal idolatry, But for, Jesus says, righteousness sake, because you're following me, because you're my disciple. What then? See, no matter how we slice it, whether whether vengeance comes up because of our own sin and our own idolatry, or because we just live in a sinful, broken world, vengeance is always crouching at the door looking to overtake us. And that's the image we find in Genesis for Cain, right? That vengeance at the door, looking to overtake him. He kills his brother Abel. So how will we respond? Third point. How, how do we live this out? How, how do we live this out? That's a good question, right? How do we live this out? Let me remind us of a few things first. The sermon, again, if you're new or just dropping in this morning, the sermon, please hear me so clearly, the sermon is not a matter of try harder, do better. The sermon is not a matter of try harder, do better, just work your way to be this kind of merciful person. Just try harder, just do better. Jesus is painting for all of us a vision of what it means to flourish in his kingdom. It is a kingdom that we enter by grace, and it is a kingdom that we grow in, you guessed it, by grace. By grace, by his indwelling presence of his Holy Spirit. So I think in our effort to live out this mercy, we need to only do one thing, just one thing this morning, really simple application. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Specifically, I want to say, we first look to his life. We first look to his life. If Jesus is the perfect human, is, is, is humanity perfected, then Jesus' life is what we are called to emulate. Jesus perfectly lived the mercy that we've seen here. Later in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is arrested, and he's mocked, and he's slapped, and he's beaten. Can you imagine that? He's spat on. The maker of saliva, the one who gives saliva its purpose, like why it even exists in our body, being like horked on. The one who formed all fingers for all people for all time, who made the hand and the arm, who designed it in all of its beauty and complexity, being slapped. 
The one who spoke the world into existence, and indeed, Hebrews tells us, upholds the world by the very power of his word. The one who spoke the world into existence, being mocked. Having those words twisted and evil spoken against him. Can you imagine that? Like, if anybody has a right to exact their revenge, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. And yet Jesus will go to the cross. He will die for the sins of people who mock and spit and and ignore and beat him. More than that, from the cross, Jesus will ask the Father to forgive the people who are killing them. See, here's what Jesus teaches us. And, And if you hear anything this morning, hear this. It is not enough as a follower of Jesus to just not act in revenge. To just say, I've I've had some injustice done against me, and I'm not going to respond. And I'm just going to chill here and just chill. But Jesus is teaching us in this text that we are to do more. He is teaching us that we are to use moments of persecution and opposition and injustice as opportunities for acts of mercy and grace. For acts of mercy and grace. We don't just accept the slap, we give the other cheek. We don't just relinquish our rights to things. We do it joyfully. And we share the good news of Jesus with the one who took it. We don't just accept foreign occupation. We look at our captors with love. And we see the image of God in them. And we pray for their salvation. We we pray for their joy. We, We pray for their families. If mercy is not getting what we deserve, grace is getting what we don't deserve. And Jesus is calling us to move beyond being people just of mercy, like I just don't do that, but to be people of grace. People who give. People who pour out. I love how one scholar explains the three examples. He says this, Jesus' examples reveal that do not resist, that phrase we read, do not resist, is as much a positive action of love as it is a negative posture. It could be translated, ready? Be ready for an act of grace. Now, is there a need, hear me, Christ City, is there a need to discern situation by situation what grace looks like? Yes. What mercy looks like? Yes. Being people of mercy does not mean that we are doormats. It does not mean that we are unwise. Remember, the Sermon on the Mount is New Testament wisdom literature. We are to wisely apply its principles. Mercy and grace also are matters of wisdom. And we need to work hard to discern how we should act. But lest we miss the radical call of these verses, let me remind us that if Jesus' life is our perfect example, it is Jesus' radical mercy and grace unto death that makes this life of mercy possible. We need to learn from Jesus' death. And the first thing, the first thing the cross of Christ tells us is that before anything else, you and I are recipients of mercy. Again, later in Matthew 18, Jesus tells the story of a king. It's this king who's forgiven his servant this huge debt, a debt that otherwise the servant could could not pay off. The king forgives the servant this huge debt and sends him on his way. He acts in mercy and in grace. And then in Matthew 18, 28, we read this. But when that same servant, that's the one who's been forgiven much, when he went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, much less than what he's been forgiven. And seizing him, 
He began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Our insurmountable debt of sin on the cross has been paid for. And yet we spend our days, and I spend my days, walking around, choking fellow servants, saying, pay me what you owe. Give me what's mine. Again, hear me, Christ City. The moment Jesus died on the cross, we lost every right, and we lose every right to exact our revenge. And maybe you're here this morning, and you don't know if following Jesus is worth it. Let me say something else. Coming to Jesus today, today, will mean laying down your desire for getting your pound of flesh. You cannot take that with you into the kingdom. Do you remember one of the the reviewers I quoted earlier said? He said this, It is asking even more, even more of the audience, if Dixon himself does no actual work in, in the name of earning that redemption. When we make people try to earn their redemption through the receiving of our wrath, right, through the taking on of our vengeance, what we functionally say, what we practically say, is we lift ourselves high and we're saying, because I've earned my redemption. I did this, so you should have to too. And that is not true. You have not earned your redemption. You have not earned your salvation. You have not earned your position in the kingdom. It is not because you are lovely or beautiful or good that Jesus saved you, but because he loves you. And anything else is a lie from the pit of hell. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed me white as snow. So we learn from Jesus' life. We learn from his death. Finally, we learn from his resurrection. I'll, I'll, I'll end here. Jesus' resurrection teaches us two really quick things about his mercy that transforms our hearts. And the first thing is this, and I want to encourage you, Christian, this life is possible. This life is possible. The Sermon on the Mount is not an impossible ideal. That's not what's happening here. Jesus is saying that in me, this life is possible. The same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is alive in us, resurrecting our hearts and changing us by his spirit over time. And it's a journey, and there are valleys, and there are peaks, but he is doing that work. He is faithful. He will do it. That's the first thing. The other thing is this. Jesus' resurrection, the fact that he's alive, reminds us that he is coming back to make all things right. That the hope that Israel had, that God would judge justly, is the same hope that you and I are to have today. The same thing you and I need to remind ourselves all the time. There are tremendous horrors in this world. Like evil, evil, evil things. Some that you have experienced. From Israel to the church today, the belief has never been that God just lets things slide. That he just lets things slide. I want to end by quoting our brother Paul, who full of the Holy Spirit summarized Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount when he said this. Beloved, Never avenge yourselves. Did you see that? Beloved, those loved by Christ, those in Christ, those belonging to the Father, never avenge yourself. But leave it to the wrath of God. 
For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, and, and here's where Jesus comes in, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. When we respond with mercy, and I pray that we be a community of mercy, that I'd be a person of mercy, even in small ways like, like, like a glass of orange juice, we, we are acting according to a different kingdom. We are living according to a different king. Would you stand with me as we respond this morning? Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.